You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee, and joining me as always in Southampton, England, is Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, we are focusing on Korean curling again this week. We we spent a lot of time at the end of our last show talking about Kim Eun-jung's return to the top of the podium at the Korean National Championships. And we have a couple of guests today that are going to give us a little bit more of the background of of their entire story and and what this what this triumph means for Korean curling. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's the bubbles, obviously the other big story, but we talked about that last episode and we'll have a chance to talk about it a bit more uh, in the future, I'm sure. But I, I honestly think that this is the the more interesting story in curling right now. Um, I mean, it's a very sad story for a team that kind of had its breakout moment robbed of, robbed from them, basically. And uh, it, it's a bit hopeful, kind of given recent events, that perhaps Team Kim will now be able to to get back on tour, uh, participate again internationally, and uh, in a certain sense, like you said, get the get the respect they they rightfully earned back in 2018. So joining us today are Team Kim's coach from the PyeongChang Olympics, Peter Gallant. Uh, Peter is a curler who represented uh, Prince Edward Island um, at the Briar. He then became a coach, um, and he started coaching Team Kim uh, back in 20, 2016 before they uh, started going um, going out on tour a little bit more putting up um, a lot better results, uh, especially at Grand Slam events before culminating with that silver medal uh, at the Olympics. So we'll touch on kind of how he became uh, involved in Korean curling um, in his his time with Team Kim and especially those two weeks at the Olympics. We are also joined by a gentleman named Melvin Lee. Melvin is a dentist in Ottawa. He's also a curler at City View Curling Club there in Ottawa. And his connection is, you know, it's the curling world is really small and it's tough to, to find people that both understand curling culture and Korean culture. And, and that would be Melvin. And he's kind of used that to, to become an international curling consultant. And he will he will kind of explain what's what that means and how he got involved in all this. It's, it's actually pretty funny how he first got involved with uh, the Korean Curling Federation. But then uh, he'll share he'll share the story of, of, of Team Kim and the very serious things that that happened to them um, throughout their career, and, and just what it means now that they're now that they're back at the top in Korean curling. All right, so we are joined by Peter Gallant, who has been coach of Team Kim in Korea. Uh, Peter, before we get started, are you currently the the coach of Team Kim, or is that time uh, kind of come and gone? Well, the contract has expired for sure, but. Uh... 
Uh, I hope to re-engage with them at some point whenever COVID gets out of the way and I can get back over there to help them. Um, you know, obviously, the long-term plan was always to try to get to the China Olympics and uh, continue to work with them there. So just kind of on a wait and see what happens with the world here. Yeah, no kidding. I hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll be able to travel and hopefully you can, uh, you can get out there soon. Um, to kind to kind of go back to the beginning of all this, um, of course your son, uh, Brett uh, curls with Brad Gushu and amazingly it was that association that sort of in a way led to you becoming uh, a coach with the Korean national team. Is that right? Uh, it, was, it was definitely the, that was the link. Um, and the story, the way it unfolded was that uh, the Koreans had arranged for Brad and Mark to go over there and help, help out the teams before I think was maybe the last Olympics. And, uh, and even after that, uh, they continued to invite the team over uh, you know, covering their expenses and everything, just so they could train with a with a top level team and try to learn the game better. So they came, made a return trip to Canada to Newfoundland, and uh, there was a week where the Gushu team couldn't be there. They had to travel to a Grand Slam, I think. So I offered to go to Newfoundland to uh, spend a week with the team and working with them. Um, I had seen them at the World University Games in Spain. I was there watching my son play for Canada, my youngest son, Christopher. And I saw the Korean girls playing at that point. So I did meet them. But uh, in Newfoundland, I got to work with them for a week. And then from there, we just kind of uh, made arrangements that I would move to Korea and uh, work with them to try to get the Olympic spot. So what were your expectations going into that job? Um, how much did you know about curling in Korea before you started uh, started coaching there and how long did it take for you to kind of get acclimated to the to the curling culture there um, I didn't really know anything about their curling culture at all to be honest with you I just uh, I'd seen this team perform and I was really impressed with some of their technical uh, capabilities and it was obvious to me in watching them play that uh, they lacked the knowledge and strategy and, and how to play the game um, from a strategy point of view. So um, as far as acclimating myself to it, um, you know, we're basically just in a small town in a province uh, with great ice. So we work four hours a day, five days a week. And when you have that much time to work with a team, you're able to, to work on a lot of different aspects. So not just technical, but uh, over time, you just, you work on the strategic parts of the game and eventually, you know, you see them evolve from that. But um, so I didn't really get a glimpse of really what the rest of the country was doing until uh, the national playdowns the first year I was over there. And you kind of see um, how technically, uh, you know, that all the teams, even down to the seventh or eighth teams that are in the national are, very solid technically, but most of the teams are just taught by a phys ed teacher or something like that who understands that part of it, but that's as far as they can take them. So um, once the girls learned the strategy and, and how to play the game a little better, they, they were able to basically become, I think, the best team in the country. Uh, like you said, uh, it's, it's gotten to where curling on the women's side in Korea is pretty deep. And now they have three teams, I think in the top 20, you know, how, how is the national program in Korea able to become that deep that quickly? 
Well, I think, you know, some of the provinces uh, are stronger than others as far as how much money they might put into it or, you know, um, you know, once you get past that third place team, you know, the fourth and fifth place teams, there's a pretty big drop down, still solid teams that would be able to compete uh, in the world, but not certainly not at the level of Minji Kim or Unji Kim uh, or the team I was coaching either. But um, I, I really, I really can't speak for it. I, I mean, I think, uh, for example, Unji Gim, who was the reigning national champion, for example, Guy Hemmings was over there working with that team for a little while. And I think some of the teams are seeing the benefits of bringing in some outside help and they're not scared to do that. And uh, Minji, Kim was, Minji Kim was fortunate, uh, you know, when she won the national championship, there were so many events she could compete in and she really made a name for herself by, uh, and she's a fabulous curler herself. So. Um, as far as how she developed into that kind of an athlete, I don't know. I don't know her background, but um, she, she's just a superstar over there. But, um, you know, I don't know how the how the rest of the teams get as good as they are with curling being so new in Korea. And, and there's not a whole lot of old guys like me that have been around the block, uh, you know, in Korea that are able to help them out with the strategy end of it. So, um you know, some of the teams did have the foresight to bring in people like, like Kuju and such. That's right. That's right. Kim Minji, the year that she won nationals was the year that the World Cup happened. So she had all those World Cup events that she got to go to as the Korean national team. Um, can you give yeah, us some kind Jung of... Kim, Unjung didn't participate that year at all, so... Um, can you give us kind of some background on how teams in Korea are supported and, and, and how they train and how they're funded? Uh, no, I, I don't have any knowledge of that, really. Um, I know okay. they all, the, each province basically has a professional team that is supported by the province. And, uh, you know, obviously they have, that's their job. So they're five days a week on the ice or in the gym or whatever else other training that Deem, they deem necessary. I know the national team has the benefit of being able to go to the national training center, which is uh, quite a new facility um, in Korea, and it's just an amazing facility. It's just every sport is represented there, and there's just a uh, just a state of the art facility there. So um, there's been a lot of money spent by government to make sure that the athletes have the equipment and and the training that they need. So. I think curling's benefit a lot from that, um, just to have those types of facilities and, and gyms and everything available. And um, but as far as anything beyond that, you know, I was never really in the loop. I'm so I've I've got a question. We had uh, JD Lind on uh, an episode, and he's one of the coaches for Japan, and he, and he observed that when he first went to Japan. Um, there's a culture in Japan, at least, that there's a lot of focus on training and the technical end. And he said that when he first got there, it's like they would do the slide through cups drill all day, but the teams didn't really want to compete so much. And so he said one of the big changes he made early on with the Japanese program was really emphasizing um, competitive experience. Did you see a similar kind of cultural difference or at least what, what to you is the most surprising difference uh, in curling cultures between Korea and Canada? Well, you know, JD is a friend of mine and we've, we've had, you know, quite a few chats over the last few years, wherever we'd run into each other over there. And it was really similar. It was, uh, they would, they'd, they'd go for a two hour practice and just slide for two hours without throwing a rock. 
And uh, I think their culture is it's, it's much more disciplined than here. And, um, you know, there's one instance where the Korean coach told me, you know, you have to yell at the girls more. And I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, that's not the way I coach. So, yeah. but in their culture, I think the teachers, you know, Wood and Melvin can probably even speak to that, um, you know, where the, you know, there's discipline there and, and they're expected to be very uh, strict in the way they do things. So. Um, that was certainly something that I noticed straight away. And, um, and I don't know if there was a reluctance to actually, you know, avoid, there certainly wasn't to avoid competition, but it really seemed to take a lot of effort from me at times to convince the, uh, their managers that, you know, we should be competing in this event or that event, you know, where we're playing the top teams in the world. Like, you know, we, we need to get used to playing those teams if we want to be comfortable playing them in a world championship or an Olympic game. So um, I think it did take a little bit of time to kind of break out of the shell. And um, the girls did have a pretty heavy schedule. And we traveled a lot in the years I was there. And I think as they grew more confident of playing Jennifer Jones or Rachel Holman or whoever it may be, and being able to beat every team that they faced at some point in time, um, you know, I think that reluctance disappeared and, uh, you know, they all understand now the importance of signing up to competitions to have the best teams. Um, so when, when you started working with Team Kim, you know, like you said, you said you'd seen him before and you were really impressed. So when you, when you started working with them as their coach, was there anything that you knew that you needed to implement kind of right away to help get them to the next level? Well, the thing other than the, the technical side, which I said was quite solid, every, every team can use a little bit of help with, with the technical end of it. But that's something you can do, just incorporate that in any practice. The number one priority for me, obviously, was, was getting the skip to understand how to make decisions and you know how to make a decision at a certain time or point in the game or an end or whatever it might be. Um, just kind of develop a bit of a system that she could uh, recognize, okay, here's how I go about my decision-making and, and then eventually come around to what call should I make in this situation. And um, that's hard to do. And it takes a lot of uh, trial and error. And, uh, you know, it, that, took, that took several years before uh, Annie, who's in Jung, before she really felt comfortable with it. And we could sit down after games and she'd say, I know, like first, before I had a chance to say anything, I know in the seventh end, you know, I, I did this and I shouldn't. And so she, it took a while, but eventually she started recognizing um, where she was kind of making errors in the strategy and, and how it was leading the problems or, you know, making her shots harder. So um, that was the most difficult part of it. And then getting the team also to buy in and understanding it as well and not, because the, the culture basically there was the skips in charge of everything and, and everybody else just does their role. Whereas we know how all four people need to be involved in the game, at least paying attention to what's going on so they can help. So, um, you know, those are the biggest things, but definitely was getting the skip to um, develop a, a plan as to how she's going to decide to make shots, call shots, I should say. Was there anything unique or out of the box that you had to do to kind of work on that with them? Like one of the stories I heard about Marcel rock when he was coaching the Chinese team was if they called timeout, 
he would go out on the ice and ask them what shot got you in trouble. And if they couldn't answer that question, he would just leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, that knowing Marcel quite well, I, that shocks me not. So, uh, but <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd watch, uh, I'd watch our team, you know, that she'd go around a center guard 16 times if she could, you know, and, and w- without even checking over her shoulder, what the score was or what end we're in or what the situation was. So, that was the biggest problem was knowing when it wasn't going her way and when it was going her way and when to keep the foot on the gas, when to not. So um, that was, that was the biggest point she had to learn. And, um, um, you know, they're very smart, intelligent people and, and they're, they're students of the game. They watch a lot of curling, but without somebody to explain it to them as the situations are unfolding and, you know, where mistakes are being made that, you know, that's where they struggle and to learn. So, um, but yeah, there was, there was a few instances there where once she started avoiding doing, as I said, you know, just without thought going around center guards endlessly with a four point lead or something, you know, without ever going up to think of peeling the guard. Uh, once she figured that out, then all of a sudden the steals of three and the, and the big ends against stopped happening and her last shots became simpler. And then it's like a light bulb goes off. I think, you know, realizing, okay, now I see. And, um, you know, subsequently uh, she started calling better games. Was there maybe a certain point where you were working with them even before, uh, before the Olympics where you kind of thought, okay, I've got something special with this team. Oh, I knew. I knew going into the Olympics, I was maybe one of the few because everybody said it was a big upset and, you know, they're big underdogs and I didn't see that at all. And I thought we could win the gold medal at the Olympics because even in the past six or eight months of the curling season where uh, I think every team at the Olympics, we had beaten them. And the problem with the girls was they just didn't string the games together. And, you know, they could go beat Rachel Holman, but then they'd lose to a lesser team or, you know, they'd beat Anna Hasselberg and then lose to, you know, somebody we never really heard of sort of thing. It was just a matter of staying focused long enough. And so that was the only question mark as far as I was concerned. When they're playing under pressure in their home rink, basically with, you know, stadiums full of people who don't understand the game and they're going to be cheering misses and, they're, you know, they're not going to understand when you're blanking <laughs> it in while you're throwing it through. Yeah. So there's things happening that were very distracting. So that's that's what I was most impressed with was how they handled the crowd and you know we talked about that and how you know you can embrace that pressure or you can try to avoid it the option was to embrace it and wave to the fans after the game and acknowledge them and try to be more relaxed out there and I think they showed that just the way they you know they never really felt that pressure until the gold medal game where they came out and just you know they weren't quite where they were all week and didn't get out of the gate the way we needed to, but um, no, I was, I told people, you know, we can win a medal here and, and there's no reason why we can't. And obviously you're, you know, when the team's like whatever we were seven and one or eight and one in the round robin, you're not really expecting to roll through like that. But, you know, I figured we'd be in the top four and in the playoffs. And then from there, I, you know, I know the girls, the way they can play, they're capable of, of doing what they did. How was your, so you've, you've kind of alluded to this a bit that you were primarily the, te- the coach for this team. So, so how was your relationship with the Korean Federation during the Olympics? Were they like, they, they kind of stayed out of your way or did you have to, 
be a kind of uh, like a frigid gap between them or were you were you always just hired by team kim to be their coach and didn't really have to deal much with the federation side of things well that was that was one of the difficulties it was um you know i was hired by by team kim initially and once you become national champion then you're basically you know you're you're working for the korean curling federation so um you know i never really had too much problem with the korean curling federation and they had uh a couple of guys there that worked for them who were pretty good liaisons for us and we got into some problems they were they were able to help us out so um we never really had too many issues with with the kcf um we just didn't you know there seemed to be so much infighting between the kcf and the and the management team of of team kim that we didn't really know who was the good guy and who was the bad guy for quite a while but um you know that certainly became evident um you know once we got to the olympics so did you witness so there's been a lot of reports in the media about abuse towards team kim so i'm wondering if you like personally witnessed uh any of the abuse that they experienced uh and if so you know what, what were your thoughts during the olympics of taking action or did you, did you did you simply decide to focus on the event and deal with that problem afterwards uh it would have been impossible for me to know the extent that it was happening because of the language like was always korean was spoken and there wasn't any english spoken um only when it needed to be to me so um you know you could tell by some of the conversations that uh you know you know it wasn't praise that was being thrown at the girls um mm. but you know it was just uh there was so much pressure put on the team to perform by the management team and the expectations were just too much for these young girls to to try to carry and uh and you know if, you know I hear after the fact about you know how they were threatened and how they were um you know if you don't win you'll never curl again that kind of stuff and um called names and I wasn't aware of, of the extent of that uh until later on that year when uh, actually it wasn't really till the girls went public with it that I knew the whole extent of it I just know how the team how that management team treated me at the olympics now they pushed me and pushed me further away from the team um seemingly like they just wanted to be seen as the ones who were going to get all the credit i guess and i certainly wasn't in it to get the credit but they just it was bizarre and um anyway it, it was mm. just a a difficult uh olympic experience if you will for anybody dealing with these managers and were were those the folks from that local um sports association that that they were involved with and not necessarily the KCF and then like what what was what was the lead up to that gold medal game like cuz i i've heard that you were kind of really pushed away from the team leading up to that game well it certainly wasn't the KCF at any point there it was uh, and it was it was the group that hired me initially you know and i've been there for 5 years basically at that point four years and uh, but yeah they just pushed me away um at one point uh, the manager didn't even tell me about a, a practice session prior to the gold medal game i had to find this out on my own and she was the one that was getting all uh, the messages um so i had to catch a bus and race to the arena just to get on the ice for the practice and before the gold medal game she wouldn't even allow me access to the team she just kept telling me the team's not ready they're in the dressing room and uh So I didn't get a chance to have our usual pre-game uh discussion about how we were uh, going to approach the game and how we're going to play the first couple of innings and just to try to get them relaxed. So um 
it was really heartbreaking, you know, when you, when you go that far with the team and then you're, you're basically pushed to that point where you can't even, you know, have a, have a five minute discussion with them. So yeah, that, that definitely wasn't easy. And, and this was that, that other coach who was the wife of the, of the official who since has been permanently expelled from the Korean curling federation. Is that correct? Well, well, the three of them are, and it was basically the father was, uh, Kim do Kim. And it was his daughter that was basically the co-coach with me. And, and she did the translation and everything. And, uh, it was also her husband who did some managing that the three of them were the ones that are, I think all three of them are banned, but, uh, it was mostly her. It was mostly uh, a woman named Min Jung Kim. That, um, yeah, she just made it more and more difficult, and uh, it created a lot of stress on everybody. So, yeah, she wouldn't even let me do interviews with the Korean uh, papers because she wanted to do all the interviews. So, it was interesting. And and so, how did that how did that translate into that gold medal game, and even into like interactions of of who goes down to the ice? Did it impact who was going down to the ice during timeouts? Or do you think that that had a big effect on the result of that gold medal game? No, the game was over before we had a chance to call a timeout. It was, um, I could see how tight the girls were just by the way they played mm-hmm. the first end. And I could see that Hasselberg's team was quite nervous too, because they missed a few routine shots early on. And I really felt that if we had been prepared the way we were for every other game, in the round robin and even in the, in the semifinal, then we could have played a solid first two ends and we could have had the lead. And instead of that, uh, we missed a few shots that I didn't see coming and, and Hasselberg had control of that game really early on. And we were down 4-1 after three or four ends. And, and uh, they're a difficult team to come back on at any point in time because they hit so well. So, um, but in the round robin game, we stuck with them and we had the lead. You know, it was back and forth, but we're never really behind in the round round when we need them. So that's the kind of game we needed to have against them. And uh, once they get up early and uh, the nerves kind of get out of the way, they were confident. And, you know, there was no beating them at that point. But we just needed to be a little better prepared to start that game. So, so I, I, I do want to kind of touch on when things were going well during the round robin and the team just kept piling up wins. Could you guys like, as a team and as a coaching staff kind of feel the, the support that was, that was coming for that team or, or were you kind of, you know, I heard that, you know, they really shielded team Holman from anything that was going on outside of the village, but could you guys really feel kind of the love that that team was getting as the winds kept piling up? Well, again, it was a little hard for me because of the culture and the Korean and the language. And uh, we did try to attend a couple of events. We went to a speed skating event one night and, uh, you're almost shielding the team, like the crowd, like everybody recognized them. And, you know, you're sitting there and people are trying to take pictures of them. And, you know, it's just like these rock stars trying to get through a crowd, you know, with, with the team. So um, we, we kind of limited the times where we really went off outside of Athletes Village for that reason, because the team's just too recognizable there. And um, so I'm not sure if the girls felt pressure from that, or I don't think they did because, you know, just the way they were coping with the crowd in the arena and, um, you know, just uh, seeing how it didn't seem to bother them. And, you know, especially when you look at, at what uh, Annie had to do on her last shot in the extra end against Japan to win the semifinal, you know, and nobody really wants to have to draw to the pin 
<laughs> to win a game like that, you know, you kind of like to have an open hit or a draw to the rings anywhere. But anyway, she was able to settle into the hack with all the pressure in the crowd and uh, put it on the button. So uh, they just kept displaying time after time. That I think that is their confidence has grew as the week went on. And, um, you know, any, any team that plays competitively, if you get on a little run like that, it just feels like, you know, you can make everything and, and nobody's going to beat you. And I, I don't know whether that's exactly the way she felt, but that's the way I was kind of feeling uh, sitting there watching them. I just was uh, feeling really confident and they, they looked so solid out there. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm wondering, so, it, so yeah, we read that uh, you said the Korean curling federation hadn't uh, didn't have the right personnel in place to take advantage of the success of team Kim. Right. So obviously winning a medal and all their fame was a great uh opportunity for growth at the grassroots level. So why do you think they were so ill-equipped to move the sport forward in terms of getting more people playing in Korea? Well, I can say a few things about that. One is that um, generally because, again, because curling is a relatively new sport in Korea, and Melvin can talk about that. It's, you know, just goes back maybe 25 years or more. I'm not sure exactly. but So you don't have a whole lot of uh, experienced curlers. Well, you don't have any sitting on the Korean Curling Federation. Most of these people are business people and they're in there to try to, uh, to run it like a business, but without that knowledge of, of what it really takes to grow the sport and what do you have to do and, and where can you go to do it. And, and the other aspect was that they mysteriously ran out of money. And, you know, maybe, and I, I don't really want to comment too much on that because I don't really know the facts on it, but. I just know that the Korean Curling Federation, prior to the Olympics, were the benefactors of these millions of dollars from uh, generous sponsors that supported them for years. And then all of a sudden, after the Olympics, there's nothing. And, and all the sponsors basically dropped off. And Korean Curling Federation had no backing. They had no money to, to work with. So, you know, with no money, it just limited what the, you know, the opportunities for them to go forward. And and, uh, you know, I think they changed presidents a couple of times. And uh, it, it just seemed like, yeah, an opportunity wasted just from some of these, you know, I don't know if you call it mismanagement or just, um, I don't know. But it's a shame because I think that uh, if they could have just went after it right away, um, you know, and, and trying to get people curling and, and get some backers to build some. I know they have built a new, a few new curling centers in the country, um, you know, in, in attempts to try to grow the sport, which is great. And I've been to at least one of them or two of them and, and they're fabulous facilities. But uh, I think, you know, not having somebody in there with a curling background really hampers them in, in trying to grow the sport. So, so, all right. So you're, are you based in Ottawa? Or are you based in Ontario, right? Are you based in Ottawa? I'm based in Ottawa. Yes. So you, you, I presume you picked up curling in Canada. How did, how did you start curling? So I learned how to curl at St. Vital Curling Club, which you guys will know is Jennifer Jones home club. Yeah. Um, I actually, I didn't do a, a Oh, lost Ryan. Uh, I didn't, uh, I didn't actually do a learn to curl course or any type of formal learning course. Basically uh, I joined the law school curling league at the university of Manitoba and uh, just as a lark. And so mm. I'd, I'd been interested in the game. And so 
uh, decided to join join their league, and that was how I started. Okay, and then you, so now you, you obviously at some point relocated to Ottawa area then, and kind of kept yes, going I, with the game then. Yes, I well, there was a, a pretty long hiatus. Like uh, uh, I, I then uh, uh, got into the Canadian forces as a as a dental officer, and most branches of the military curling is quite uh an avid activity uh there's Mm. a a long tradition and the canadian forces dental course no exception so um i I played on several curling teams while serving as a dental officer and then had children moved to ottawa started a dental practice and so i actually was not involved in curling for basically pretty up much until the 2018 olympics Okay. And that's when the story gets kind of weird for me and my family. Uh, my daughter, born here, born and raised here in Canada, was captivated, didn't know anything about curling, but was captivated by Team Kim and the Korean woman's success uh, to the point where she was basically, because of the time difference, she mm-hmm. was making sure to watch every single game. And they were going, as Ryan talked about, on the roll. Uh, and then, of course, as a whole family, we saw them. I, I think the happiest moment in sport for me, for as a Korean, was watching uh, Eun Jung Kim draw to the button in that semifinal against Japan. I'm not joking you. Like it, it's on par with Korea's uh, World Cup semifinal in 2002 in soccer, uh, other Olympic gold medal victories. Like for me. As a Canadian, that was really, really special. And also for my daughter, Emma. And so the Olympic tournament ended. And so my Emma says to me, Daddy, can we see Team Kim live sometime? I'm like, well, uh, you know, Canada hosts a lot of uh, championships and tournaments, uh, international tournaments. So if they come here, then we'll go see them. But my wife found out that next week, that the women's worlds would be held the month after Pyeongchang finished in North Bay. So because North Bay is only a three hour drive away, we booked a hotel and lo and behold, Emma was in front, literally mm. several feet in front of her Olympic idol, Eun Jung Kim and her team. And uh, it was really cool. It was really cool. Yeah. And so is that, so is, were you, is that the event where you met them and kind of started to make connections to the yeah. team curling? So, uh, pretty crazy story. So in 2003, when I was in Winnipeg, uh, the, the men's world championship tournament was at the Winnipeg arena. And it was the first time ever that Korea had actually qualified for a world championship, their men's team. So it was just after the 2002 soccer world cup. So there was a bit of still like, you know, a fever, uh, with Korean sports mm-hmm. fans around the world. So I gathered about, it was about 20, 25 students from the University of Manitoba, Manitoba Korean Students Association. We went down, bought our Korean flags and went in the stands. About fourth or fifth end, this woman dressed in like the Korean uniform bounds up to us in the stands and starts to say, oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming. We didn't know Koreans lived here in Winnipeg. Thank you so much for cheering us. Would you like to come out with me and the team for supper after the draw? They were playing Scotland for that first draw. I said, oh, absolutely. That sounds great. And it was during dinner that this, this woman coach had uh, asked me for a favor. She said, because you speak English quite well, 
Can you please get us hooked up with a curling club here, here in Winnipeg that was built within the last 10 years? We want to build the first dedicated private curling club in Korea. Because right now we're mm. curling on arena ice and it's not good for our players. So I did a search about two, three days and I found that the Fort Gary Curling Club in Winnipeg had been just built seven years previous. So I got mm. them hooked up with the manager and then psh, that was it. There mm. was a simple thank you email and then that was it. Yeah. It was at this, so at the North Bay Women's Worlds that I was waiting for their autograph after yeah. the game with my family that this man was talking with the Korean ambassador to Canada and the senior ranking, uh, most senior ranking parliamentarian, Korean Canadian parliamentarian, Senator Yona Martin, waiting themselves to meet the team, where he says this, 15 years ago in Winnipeg, me and my wife and my team, we, men's team, we went to Winnipeg and we met this enthusiastic young Korean dentist I was standing right beside <laughs> this guy when he was saying this. So what he did was I tapped him on the shoulder. I said, uh, uh, Mr. Kim, uh, you're telling the story, but I have a feeling that you're talking about me. I, I burst out like those first few words and then he recognized me. And he said, Dr. Lee! And he, he, he <laughs> So that's how I started getting in contact with the Team Kim curlers uh with katie kim uh and his family now uh there were many things and projects that we were working on together to actually expand the sport of curling at least his attempt to expand the sport of curling in korea but unbeknownst to me there were a lot of these as you guys have already mentioned uh incidents of abuse harassment stealing of prize money all of these things that were going on um uh, uh, uh away from my knowledge. Uh, and I was equally shocked, uh, at, at, like the rest of the curling world, when Unjung and her teammates in October of that same year did the press conference uh, to, uh, to claim that these unfortunate uh, incidents had happened. Mm. I, guess, I guess so. I guess the questions, you know, I, I, okay, so let's put it this way. For a lot of our listeners, they may not really know the full story. Like it's it's kind of, so for, for people like really into the curling world, it's clearly been reported on like um, Sports Illustrated with the new curling news. There's a good write-up and there's been a few other media write-ups. But you mind kind of walking through kind of what the allegations are and what's happened to the parties involved? For sure. And th this is all, uh, I was, I'm going to be very honest with you, being close friends with Team Kim, Annie, Peter, even, I am so glad that a Western news outlet has broken the story because it was kind of under the surface. It was only really known in Korea and maybe in Asia until now. Um, Katie Kim and his family, uh, you, it is accurate to say that they devoted and committed their whole family lives to curling and to development of uh, curling athletes in the now famous town of Uisong, which is in the southeastern part of Korea. Um, he was kind of the, he was the first son of his family. His younger brother was a phys ed teacher at the local high school. So in terms of the, the, the dirt, well, not the dirt, but the, like getting the hands dirty and, and recruiting students and cur curlers, it was more his brother that was doing that. 
So it was a whole family affair. Um, the early part of the relationship between Team Kim, the Team Kim Curlers and Katie Kim, I'm not very familiar with. I do know that it was my <laughs> connection uh, with the Fort Erie Curling Club that actually, the, the Oisan Curling Club is an identical replica in terms of the playing surface as the Fort Erie Curling Club. Um, but once it was built and finished in 2006, then the recruitment for curlers happened. And it was shortly after that, that Unjong, um, so Unjong and Youngmi are friends. Uh, this is kind of, it's, it, this is funny and it's a true story. So Katie's brother said, okay, just kind of random. There's this new sport curling and we've just built a curling league right beside the high school. Who is interested? Who, who wants to play? And so Unjong raised her hand and approached him. And then he said, okay, can I play? And he goes, okay, you can play, but you have to bring a friend. So she went back to her class and wrote on the chalkboard, does anybody want to play curling with me? And Youngmi was the friend who said, okay, yeah, please, I'll go with you, right? So they went, they started playing, they started curling. Then Youngmi's younger sister, Kyung-e, she's also called Steak. She's the team's third. Mm -hmm. Apparently Youngmi forgot her lunch. So Kyung-e went to the curling rink to bring her sister's lunch and then saw this really interesting thing happening on that is curling. What's, what's this? And she asked that same uh, uh, phys ed teacher, oh, it's curling. Your sister's curling. Oh, oh, teacher, can I play too? Yes, but you have to bring a friend. So she <laughs> went back to her, her class, right? And then Sunny, Sun Young was the one that said, yes, can I play too? And so that's how the original four curlers were recruited. They started training, they started playing like that. But as Peter said in the first part of the tonight's uh, podcast, um, technically, I mean, they were curling anywhere from eight to 12 hours a day. Oh, wow. Like even, at that, even at that stage. Oh yeah, absolutely, wow. absolutely, right? So that's why, I mean, like th that technical superiority, in my opinion, truly, and I'm trying to be objective here, didn't come by chance, right? Mm. You know, Alan Iverson, right? I'm talking about practice. It's practice and practice and practice, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. But what they lacked, because there was no coaches with any type of international competitive experience, therefore strategy, right? Mm -hmm. What is what Peter talked about. And so thankfully, I don't know, somebody on Katie Kim's team decided that to, to get this next level coaching, uh, they had to turn to Canada. And I think because Brad Gushu had, you know, been, had such a, you know, uh, championship pedigree reputation, they had actually extended out their hand and then uh, the rest of the story Peter told. Yeah, that's, that's actually a really interesting story. It's because uh, we had uh, like former Team GB coach, Tony Zumak, on. he kind of talked about the tripod of curling excellence. And he talked about the three T's, so tactics, technique and team dynamic and actually mm -hmm. the fact they were all like to me so you just said they're all they're all friends they've played together since high school right they, yeah. they, like the team dynamic was just kind of both oh. in it sounds like and then it's basically the ten thousand hour rule right if you're yes you're playing eight to ten hours a day you're gonna eat your ten thousand hours really fast right that the idea that you gotta get ten thousand hours of, of reps in to, to master a skill and then I yeah you're right get a get a world-class coach to, to handle the tactics. And that's the I, formula. 
I have to tell you, Jonathan, because I know these all five of the ladies very, very well, right? I don't think it would be very difficult to find team chemistry. Uh, maybe Jennifer Jones's team that mm. parallels or even comes close to the chemistry on the team Kim curlers, right? They're practically, they're two of them are sisters or best friends, right? It's like, it's like a family tree. Yeah. And then Chohi is the, is the kind of the outsider, but she came onto the team quite early. So she's like a sister too. I mean, the five of them are really, they, they, they interact and bond like sisters. I've had meals with them multiple times, you know, and uh, they just click so well, right? Yeah. So well. So, but, so I'm looking at the record and so they didn't, did they, they never even qualified for a world juniors, right? They just, they kept kind of hitting the ceiling of not being able to get past uh, China in terms of uh, qualifying for a world juniors or? Well, okay. So I, I, I heard the question that you guys asked uh, Peter regarding how curling is development and how it's uh, funded yeah. in Korea. Um, my connection, uh, this is quite recent. I actually am an advisor to the Korea Curling Federation. Hmm. So I worked through most of this year with <laughs> their vice president, but uh, that person has also been found. Um, uh, they're investigating him. Uh, that's, hmm. a, that's as much as I can say. But I did find out about the inner workings of the federation and how teams are developed. They call the Korean national championship final shot, the $700,000 shot. Hmm. Because the team that wins the national championship basically gets a $700,000 windfall, $700,000 US hmm. windfall, right? For the next year. So that's, like, that's probably the biggest yeah. prize in curling. It is like, in Korea. Yeah, no, in the it world, is. I would say. Maybe, maybe. Like, maybe. Maybe the gold medal. Maybe the gold medal is probably worth more at the Olympics. <laughs> but like, I'm like, e yeah. even the Briar is not seven hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, right. Like, I was I was having this conversation with the Game of Stones guys, and they were like, "Well, why isn't Kim Minji or Kim Un Jung going to Pacifics or the World Qualifier and all this?" I was like, "Because Team Gim won the national title. Like, they they are Team Korea until the Correct. next Korean Championship game. Correct. That's how this works out there." And <laughs> The thing is, I'll tell you guys, okay, even as a Korean, but the thing is, I, because I lived my whole life here in Canada as a Korean-Canadian, I didn't understand this. Like, I, 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 I said to Annie and Unjong multiple times, you're the Olympic silver medalist. What does it matter if you're the Korean national team? Like, you're, you're an Olympic silver medalist. I mean, if you were here in Canada, you'd be getting sponsorships and you'd be getting companies giving you money and all. He, she said to me very simply, Dr. Lee, that doesn't matter even a little bit. In Korea, if you're not the Korean national team, not just for curling, for many sports, you're nothing. Hmm. And so that's why, I mean, it was, I have to tell you, right? I just want to say a few words about Team Kim's resilience and perseverance. What you have to understand is what these, this team and these ladies have gone through, uh, very few professional level athletes or elite athletes have gone through, right? Not to mention that there was basically no grassroots, really. Like there's, like there's pre Song, uh, sorry, pre Pyeongchang and post Pyeongchang curling in Korea, right? Nobody, mm -hmm. nobody cared about curling in Korea before the 2018 Olympics, right? And so, like Peter was talking to you about, there's no money. There was no money, right? Um, afterwards, you would think that uh, the team should have enjoyed uh, sponsorship, multiple like 
multi-million dollar sponsorship deals and uh, great fame and adulation and support, at least from the government? Mm. No. And uh, I can say this to you now, now that the story has kind of broke, the reason and the sole family that was responsible for that not happening was Katie Kim and his family during, the, during that spring and summer of 2018. I still remember when I was, he was doing multiple visits to meet me here in Canada during that year. Me and my wife urged him and Unjung Kim and, and her team, you've got to put them, like they're like rock star status. They have the potential to truly blow up curling in Korea. You have to take this opportunity. And he would give this excuse or that excuse. Now we all know it's because he was actually trying to siphon all of the sponsorship money and funds and would make the condition. I mean, I'm telling you, companies like Hyundai, Samsung, these major Korean companies were throwing money at Tim Kim. He was saying, okay, no, but it has to be done through me. You have to deal with me. And that's where the deal broke. So he basically took all their sponsorship money then? Well, no, the, the, the deals never got done because okay. the companies were saying, no, 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 we don't want to deal with you. We, don't, we want to deal with the curlers, right? Yeah. They did, they, like, you know, if you, if you see on YouTube, they did a few, uh, few commercials with LG and mm -hmm. there were some of these smaller companies. But uh, it, it really, in hindsight, it's not just tragic. It's almost unforgivable what that family did to the team Kim curlers. And so to, for have, to have them go through that in 2018 and then uh, them not uh, securing the national championship, uh, Unjung in the meantime did get married and have a baby. So she had to take a period of uh, mat leave. Uh, so there was that period as well, but you talk about perseverance and uh, just resilience through difficult times of suffering and challenge. Uh, and then coming back to win the national champions as they did this year. I, I was talking to Peter just before going on with you guys. We almost started crying because we knew about all of the difficulties that these ladies had gone through and still they've come, up, uh, come out on top. Yeah, that was, that was going to be, that was going to be my last question for Peter. And unfortunately we had some technical difficulties there. So I'll ask it to you. Can you just like, Tell us, you know, what, what was the pride that you felt when they, when they won the national championship again the other day? Sorry. I'm... It's emotional for me. It is. It's emotional for me. You have to realize, right? As much as Katie Kim did and his family did many bad things against them. The flip side is they were their whole support network, coaching, management, PR, transportation, accommodation, everything, right? In one swell sloop, it was gone. And so that's where my relationship with the team uh, got closer because they reached out to me. They didn't know who else to reach out to. Hmm. They reached out to me to get back in touch with Peter. Because they knew that in Peter, this was, he, he was there, he was a true coach. And if, I'm, if I may say so, just, I want to say a few words mm -hmm. about Peter, okay? Because as you, you saw during the interview, he's so humble. 
And he's a guy that doesn't take much credit. Okay. Mm. This guy, what he's done for the sport of curling, in my opinion, is synonymous. I don't know if you guys are soccer fans, but what Goose Hitting, the Dutch coach, did for Korea for soccer, mm. I see him on the same level. Team Kim doesn't win a silver medal unless Peter Gallant is involved. And myself, Team Kim, I'm close with the Korean men's team, the former Korean men's team. Hmm. All of them, we're so apologetic as Koreans because of the lack of gratitude and thanks that was spared from him at the conclusion of the PyeongChang Olympics. I want this forum to know that Team Kim, their success happened. And all of the lady curls, all of the Team Kim curls will say the same. That success happened because of Peter Gallant's involvement. Right? Mm. And I really need to give credit where it's due. Uh, I also want to say to you, I don't know if your listeners know, he was recently inducted into the PEI Sports Hall of Fame. Uh, I think, I know his, his achievement was for another country, but as a Canadian, as a Canadian curler, what he's done for, I'm sorry. What he's done for my mother country, Korea, and the sport of curling cannot be ignored anymore. Cannot be ignored anymore. And Annie and her teammates wanted me to come on your podcast so that your Canadian and American and, and uh, you know, English and other countries, curling fans would know how grateful they are to Peter Gallant as their coach. Mm. So I mean, something you just said, I, I'm not even misunderstood it, but um, like, were they not able to contact Peter? Like you, you had to be the go-between that they were basically cut off from access to him? Well, well their English isn't that good, first of all. Yeah, okay. Right? Their English isn't that good. Um, uh, also, it, it, was, it was a matter of like, they, like their whole infrastructure was taken away with them uh, overnight. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, they basically, Unjung, I think it was January of 2019, uh, made a call out to me and said, Dr. Lee, we really would like to have Peter as our, as our coach. Would you be able to connect us? And mm -hmm. uh, thankfully, uh, he had agreed. And yeah, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I, I know you had asked a question, Jonathan, to Peter about going forward. Yeah. The, the goal for Peter and Team Kim is very clear. They want to win gold at Beijing. Yeah. They want to win gold at Beijing. And honestly, um, I think they've proven to the curling world that it is no longer going to be like an underdog or long shot, that they are a real contender to do that. Yeah. So we... It's good that the people that were causing them so much pain are no longer involved in the sport. But like you said, like overnight, boom, they had to find a new support system because their entire support system as abusive and as much mistreatment as presented them, they were their whole support system. And Correct. to have them gone overnight, they had to hit the reset button. Correct. Correct. And so... Um... Their local sports council, which is, uh, their Uisung is in the province of North Gyeongbuk. So Gyeongbuk means North in Korean. So uh, North Gyeongsan province. 
Um, their sports council be kind of became their support network uh, and their support team. Uh, there were certain coaches. There's this one coach, uh, Miles. His English name is Miles, but Korean name Myung Sup Lim, that uh, was uh, mentored by Peter, played uh, as an elite curler when he was younger. So he is right now the Korean coach for their team. Uh, and uh, there have been definitely other people that have come on board over the past two years. Um, but yeah, it was um, 20, late 2018 and 2019 was a very difficult time for the team. And uh, for them to you know, come back to the level of play where they're at now is a true testament of perseverance to Team Kim. I also have to mention this. Uh, what your listeners need to know is the culture of abuse and harassment that happens not just in Korea, but uh, China and in other East Asian countries, perhaps maybe even other countries, must stop. And Annie um, uh, had said that after the press conference that her team did in 2018, there was a lot of public interest but in terms of political will by the Korea Curling Federation or the Korea Olympic uh, Committee, uh, the National Sports Organization, nothing was really done actively to change things mm. until um, there was a triathlete named Choi Suk-kyun who committed suicide mm -hmm. because of coaching harassment and abuse. This, this, this happened this year, earlier mm. this year. It was only then when an athlete took her own life, that the, the Korean Olympic Committee and all sports organizations in Korea made a commitment to address athlete abuse and harassment. Yeah, I, I remember reading that the members of Team Kim said that they probably felt the same, the same anxiety and the same despair that that Choi had felt, and it, it seems like that's really been just a reckoning for for Korean sports as a whole since that happened this summer. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, uh, Choi's death, she kind of died sort of like a martyr for Korean athletes and it's very tragic and so sad. But I'm hoping that government, Korean sports coaches, officials and organizations will finally do something to um, stop this, this culture of abuse and uh, hierarchy and uh, like dictatorship, right? Mm. That exists in Korea. Yeah, I I'm doing uh, my part to help the curlers uh, in particular, uh, trying to get them like, like is happening in Canada, setting up a, a curler curlers association, a curling players association mm. so that they together as a body can have a stronger voice such that this type of abuse harassment systems do not, uh, cannot take place again. I, I did want to kind of get into that and uh, into your background. You are, you are a dentist by trade, as we mentioned. Um, and I think it's an interesting story. How did you add international curling consultant to your resume? The short answer is COVID because with COVID-19, uh, my clinic, along with, uh, I think, all dentists in Canada, 
our clinics were locked down for essentially three months. Now my wife doesn't work. So basically I'm the sole breadwinner for our family and our family therefore had no income. I did have these connections with these, you know, high level curlers and with Peter Gallant. Uh, and in a visit that I'd done to Korea in December of 2019, by chance, I met up with the Korean Korea Curling Federation vice president. So we struck up a conversation and um, she wa he wanted to have me be work as a consultant with uh, curling companies here in Canada, high level curlers like Jennifer Jones, Brad Gushu, and the prospect of actually holding a Grand Slam of curling style event in Korea. And uh, it, it's not official, but uh, it, it's, it's, it's gone serious enough that I'm comfortable to announce Sportsnet has actually, I've, I've brokered a, a deal with them to broadcast a Grand Slam of, uh, of curling cash tournament in Korea. Wow. Basically, once the COVID-19 travel restrictions lift. And so with all of these things I was doing, like I wasn't, I wasn't drilling teeth and pulling them out. So trying to find something else to do to try to, you know, earn some income. Hmm. Uh, the Korea Curling Federation saw it fit to hire me as an international curling consultant. And so that's what happened. So that's, that's actually interesting. And I'm kind of, I know there's been more and more kind of high profile events in Asia, right? Like both yes. Japan and Korea have been having large bond spiels and they're often able to get, it's probably like the field's normally like half, you know, grand slam level teams, then half kind of top, top teams in, in Asia that aren't quite slam yet, right? So uh, I, I guess what's the, like you said, like if, it, if, if you don't win the Korean championship, what do you do? Like you just do nothing for the year? Are there enough events around Korea to play and get strong? Or like, what's your chance if you're not the winner? Because there's three really good women's teams in Korea right now. And the other two seem like, it's, it seems like a strange way to run a system, right? Where you're, you you're, you're absolutely right. And I can't get into the full details of it because there yeah. are still, believe it or not, legal proceedings regarding KD Kim. It's not mm -hmm. fully over with his family. Yeah. And there's also been additional, as I said to you, this, this vice president I've been working with, he's been recently charged with um, various uh, unprofessional acts, we'll call them, right? Mm -hmm. um, I can only speak to the experience of Annie, Eun Jung Kim, like Dean Kim, right? Um, because curling isn't as well established in Korea, my, my observation for Team Kim was, well, they're just kind of flailing in the wind, mm. right? They're only, um, I think things are different for them uh, because they have the notoriety, right? And uh, curling nations outside of Korea recognize who they are. And so if by chance they are able to rank within the top 15, I can't remember how, like what, what ranking you have to be to invite, be invited to uh, Grand Slam events or international mm. curling events. Yeah. Without that, there's nothing else. There's nothing yeah. else. And literally there is nothing else. There's nothing else in Korea for them to aspire to. Yeah. And that probably makes it tough for like the next gen or like the other teams coming up. I assume there's probably more than three deep that have ambitions. And so there's probably not yes. much for them to develop in, right? 
That's correct. But so what I'm trying to do in my capacity as an international curling consultant and advisor, um, really, I, I've been told to wait. We have the Korean Curling Federation is having its new uh, executive board elections January. Hmm. And so both Annie Unjong and the men's, the former national team men's skip Changmin, uh, CK, he's called in English. They, two of them have said to me, just please wait. Once the new president has been elected, we'd like to connect him with you to give them some ideas as to how to, um, uh, how to bring about more corporate sponsorship into curling, mm -hmm. how to develop curling at the grassroots, particularly amongst the younger kids, school children and middle and high school students, um, and to how to, how to even promote the sport more. So we're talking about various social media and YouTube channels, this type mm. of thing, right? Yeah. Um, also to get various governments on board uh, to, to support, financially support and just support curling, right? Yeah. Um, so these are some initiatives that right now are kind of in, in, on standby. Hmm. that I'm hoping to, to work with uh, the Koreans in um, grow the, growing the sport in Korea. Do you think they've been given kind of a second chance to capitalize now that uh, Team Kim Eun-jung is once again the, the national champions? Do you think that this is like a second chance for Korean curling to capitalize on and get some more grassroots involvement that they missed out on after, after the 2018 Olympics? Um, the optimistic side of me would like to say yes, but the realistic side of me says it's going to be challenging. It's going to be challenging. The thing you guys need to know about Koreans, right? We're very hot and cold people, right? Something's trending, you know, like even team Kim. I'm, I'm, and when Peter said rock stars, mm -hmm. I'm not joking you. The yeah. hottest people, the hottest people. In Korea, in like March, April, May, right after the 2018 Olympics, were the Team Kim curlers. Hmm. You would have them come to malls and ah, just, <laughs> you know, teenage girls just screaming, yelling, you know, just yeah. chomping over each other trying to get their autograph. Yeah. Right. I, and, I, and I think I told you this, but like, so they went to the Worlds in North Bay that you were at, and I was yeah. paying attention to that because on the U S side of things, team Sinclair made a pretty good run at that yep. worlds. And that was coming right after, I think, um, no, 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 that was right. That was right before. I think that was right before they won, um, the grand slam event, but team Sinclair made a pretty decent run at that worlds. Mm -hmm. And the only way that you could kind of pay attention to it back then. And amazingly 2018 still kind of seems like the dark ages for, for, for curling media. But the only way that you could pay attention to some of those games was to watch curling geek as he did shot by shot recaps. Oh yes. And there was a playoff game between team Sinclair and team Kim. I, you know, I was, I saw it and I <laughs> wished you wouldn't bring this up. I think uh, team Kim gave up like six or seven yeah. in the end. But yeah. that's not really the point of the story is not that the U S won. the U S won. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the point of the story is not that the U S won, but like you'd go in and you'd, you'd watch curling geeks shot by shot and you'd see, you know, there's 
a hundred or so people watching whatever. And then all of a sudden the Korean team is involved in a playoff game. And it was like some insane number of people just watching little (laughs) cartoon rocks get moved (laughs) on a screen. And like all of the chat is in Korean. Korean. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) I'm telling you, Ryan, hot and cold. And so like literally, I mean, seriously, it, it, I still am angry as to the pots. Like the, if you talk about a window of capitalization, it was then. It mm-hmm. should have then. Yeah. But, you know, with time and then, and, and, and it's so unfair to the team Kim Curlers, right? Koreans are so adverse to scandal. They don't mm-hmm. want to be associated with anybody who's involved in scandal, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. if they're the victims. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So that has actually tainted them even more, not to mention, you know, time passing and nothing's happening with curling and so these two reasons are why in korea yes it's going to be challenging but uh i do have inside information that curlers international curlers and the curlers here in canada are looking to actually compete more in asia because they know that the sport has significant financial potential there compared to here. Mm. Well, I mean, shoot the, I mean, the premier league knows that. I mean, there is a, it's basically, you know, what sport is going to be the first one other than soccer. Cause I think soccer and the premier league have truly unlocked um, East Asia. I -hmm. think they were the first ones to really do it from a Western perspective. And it's like, Mm -hmm what's the next what's the next sport that's going to do it and you know curling may not be able to have more cachet than major league baseball or the nfl out there but i think that they can still carve out a pretty good um a pretty good niche market um in east asia for curling i think there's big potential there for for curling in east well asia. i mean just just as an actual concrete example the, the the tournament that we're wanting to host in korea this grand slam style tournament we've got a minimum $150,000 purse mm. that we're going to be offering. Wow. Mm-hmm. And that, when I've spoken with Korean officials, is small. Yeah. Mm. It's small. Yeah, so, so if you can get the right corporate sponsor behind it, then... Absolutely, Jonathan. Absolutely. And then, and then if that kind of prize purse, I'll get any team in the world, they'll sign up to go to that. Yeah. So it's a matter of parlaying. Back to your question, Ryan. Parlaying... Because, I mean, really, Tim Kim, as you've said, they have a tremendous international following, right? It's just a matter of communicating and literally talking. And this is what I'd like to do because I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to go back to Korea sometime in the, in the beginning of the year. Talking to major companies like Hyundai, like Samsung, right? And saying, look it, this team is known internationally. Thomas Bach, the IOC president, said at the conclusion of the Pyeongchang Olympics, Team Kim, this is the team of the Olympics. Hmm. And at the Paralympics uh, cauldron lighting, Eunjung Kim lit the cauldron, okay? as selected by the IOC. They are very well known internationally. To have Korean companies, major companies, realize their international reach and scope, I think it just takes a conversation. And then curling, I, so mark my words, gentlemen, I think Korea is going to serve as the Asian hub of curling. So if we were, if we were to sum this up, Melvin, kind of, I mean, what's, 
What's the main takeaway we should all have from, from this story and the way things have evolved from how to, how team Kim was able to kind, kind of rise and you did, you saw that steady rise that culminated in 2018, the horrible things that happened to them. And then the, the comeback that they had, what, what should be our main takeaway? What's the moral of the story? What's the one thing that you fit that you hope that, that everyone takes away from, from what's happened to them and, and, and what they have, what their future holds. Can I close out that by saying what Unjung Kim's hope is for the next Olympics? This is verbatim. I spoke with her this morning. Okay. And unfortunately, I'm sorry that uh, she couldn't come on, but she wanted, she wanted to say this at Pyeongchang, we could not enjoy the Olympic experience due to extenuating circumstances and hardships in dealing with our management team. In Beijing, we wish to have fun and enjoy the Olympic experience while trying to achieve our ultimate goal to win an Olympic gold medal for Korea. Jonathan, these are two people that are extremely passionate about Korean curling. You you can tell when when they talk about Team Kim how much that team means to both of them and, and how happy they are that this team has come back and, and found their way back to the top of the podium. Yeah. You know, one thing I, a thought I had is that um, to draw an analogy with college football, like what Melvin is, is he's, he's basically a booster, right? And in college football, boosters are really important. They're not just fans. They're the people who like sometimes they donate money, but they're kind of doing a lot of the activities behind the scene to help support and build the program. And really, like at several key moments, it sounds like Melvin stepped up and helped support uh, the growth of Korean curling. And he's been very instrumental in helping Team Kim kind of get back back on the playing field, so to speak. Let's also not uh, not lose lose sight of the fact that it was uh, this this group of women that 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 came together and uh, and and found a way to come back when I know. If this had happened to me, it would have been tough for me to get back on the ice, and it would have been—I probably would have hated curling. Uh, I probably would have wanted nothing to do with it. And for them to to show the fortitude to 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 come back the way they have is just incredibly impressive. Yeah, I think it, I think it's a good story. I mean, it's great that they've won the championship. I think we talked a little bit about that system is kind of you either get everything or nothing, right? You either win the mm-hmm. championship or you've got nothing, and that's that's a pretty brutal system. And it's great that they've been able to kind of overcome their obstacles, win the championship again, um, you know, and, and with that, get the funding they need to kind of compete internationally this season. Yeah. And it'll be, it'll be good to see them back um, now that they do have the funding once COVID is over and we kind of get back to, to being able to have competitive curling again. It'll be good to see their name uh, in the in the list for a lot of these big tournaments, um, and it's been it's been fun to see all three teams: Team Kim Un Jung, Team Kim Minji, and Team Kim Un Ji um, get out and have the success that they've had on tour. It shows the the strength of those three teams and and ha- and the the depth of Korean curling. Yeah, and I th- as we said kind of several times in this podcast, for for curling to really take the next step, there's there's basically two global markets it needs to crack. And the first one's the US and the second is Asia, right? So China being obviously because it's the largest country, the biggest market, but Korea and Japan have also had kind of big growth. And if uh, all three of those countries essentially form 
some kind of Asia Pacific uh, curling tour and you can kind of get events like slams or other kind of high quality cash spiels in there and, and teams that then gives teams like team cam the chance to compete regionally. Um, like the growth of the sport could how the sport takes off the size of the purses, the kind of global coverage for the sport is kind of, I'd say almost unimaginable. Yeah. And it's going to be exciting to see if, if that's something that, you know, the success of, of team Kim in, in Korea and the success of team Fujisawa in Japan, if the, if, that leads to, to something like that. Um, just want to say thank you to everyone for listening in. Um, we're, we're looking forward to bringing you um, even more on, on Asian curling in the future. And of course, we also have a few episodes planned on, on some changes that are happening here in North America as well. Uh, we always end the show by saying, um, how much we appreciate you listening and, and tell you that the biggest compliment we can receive is if you tell a friend about us. Um, so thank you, uh, everyone who's done that. Uh, if you're a fan of the show and you haven't already, please let your friends and family know that they can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever third-party podcast app might be their favorite. Uh, if you're getting grandma or grandpa a new phone this Christmas, uh, celebrate by, you know, preloading our show into their app and, and turning on notifications. Um, thank you. <laughs> That's a joke, but, but not really. Uh, th- thank you again for, for your support. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, you can email us at, at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, thank you again, uh, and we will talk to you again real soon.